I was surprised to learn that Lido, the Ethereum and Solana staking as a service provider that creates tokens that represent staked cryptocurrency that you can then trade in secondary markets, which of course breaks the security assumptions around staking, because if you can stake your coins and then have a liquid token that represents them, then you haven't given up anything. So staking is essentially sort of costless or whatever. And it also has the added benefit of centralizing all the staking control into a company, because Lido is a company, no matter how they describe themselves. They also have a meaningless, unregistered security token called LDO. I guess we shouldn't have been surprised. We both were. But of course they do. Of course they do. I, when you first told me about this, I was like, yeah, they got Steve. No, 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 no. LDO is a whole other token, which has been hammered recently because rumors were circulating that they were about to get sued by the SEC. And I love how the rumors are being shared on a wildly successful pump and dump podcast that, in my view, just represents everything that's great about Ethereum and the people around it. And they're just talking up a bunch of nonsense, saying that they've got inside information, talking about how the SEC, before they sue someone, they send them something called a Wells Notice, I think based on the law or something that establishes the precedent. And the Wells Notice says, hey, by the way, it's the SEC. We're probably going to sue you. So you need to be ready to get sued. In some ways, the SEC is really helpful in that regard. But obviously, when you receive one of these notices, you do not want to let anyone know, because if you are a public company or you have issued an unregistered security or something, everyone's going to dump that security the moment they hear there's a Wells notice. Well, it's just funny that Lido, which is problematic in so many ways, also has a illiquid (laughs) unregistered security that they (laughs) issued just to print money, to take money from people. And let's be honest, the reason why the price is crashing, (laughs) which is so funny from that rumor that really started at a meetup that then made it onto a podcast is a the market is very, very small and easy to manipulate. So it reacted quickly and harshly. And then (laughs) the second thing is they all know it probably should get sued by the SEC. So they believed it because it is a security and they all know it. More on that later. The other just bit of potato chip crypto schadenfreude news is that the Hedera network shut itself down after they detected network irregularities. So FYI, if you can turn off your blockchain, though I think technically speaking, they didn't say they turned off the blockchain. They just closed down the public proxies to access the network. Well, it sounds like you're a centralized endeavor, and it's probably true that your HBAR native token is an unregistered security. I'm trying to think, how do we do this in Bitcoin? Let's say like... uh something happens and we need to do it. We need to do an organized shutdown. Okay. So we need to coordinate with about 15,000 individual node operators, maybe more because there could be tens of thousands more on tour. So we got to coordinate with all of them just real quick. Maybe we do that over Twitter. And then we got to also make sure we coordinate with the miners and probably need to get a little bit of core dev team on board too. So we'll just get all these individual groups who have their own incentives. We'll get them all together real quick and then we'll just shut the Bitcoin network down. Chris, there's a much easier solution. If you want to shut down Bitcoin, just shut off the internet. (laughs) Yeah, that'll do it. Wait, isn't there a known space now? The International Space Station. Uh Uh-oh. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Friday, March 10th, 
2023. I'm your Bitcoin dad, and I'm here, as always, with me. It's, it's Chris over here. Hi. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. In today's show, we will cover a U.S. Treasury speech on CBDCs. They are coming. And one thing that's great about humans is that humans often tell you exactly what they're going to do. So the Treasury will tell us exactly what the CBDC is for. Silvergate Bank, an important crypto banking institution, is winding down operations after a bank run and regulatory pressure. We've been talking about this, and it has happened. So we'll talk about the details and what this implies for the quote-unquote crypto industry and Bitcoin. Letitia James, the New York Attorney General, is suing Qcoin, a offshore cryptocurrency exchange, and BTW, she thinks that Ethereum is not a security, and it's in the lawsuit. Is a security. Is a security, sorry. Crypto Twitter wants to believe Ethereum is not a security. The energy attack on Bitcoin continues. There's a nice Twitter thread about this, including a video clip where one of the lawmakers behind the attack admits that it's all just BS. They just want to kill this thing, and energy oh. is a convenient way to go after it. All right. So my blood pressure is going up. Yeah, this is going to be a high blood pressure <laughs> episode. Okay. I'll prepare myself. I'll start zenning out. On the crypto banking front, the attack continues. The reports are circulating that Gemini, the Winklevoss's Winklevise crypto exchange, may be losing banking access from JP Morgan. That is would be so hilarious if it's true. And another bank that's crypto adjacent, Silicon Valley Bank, has suffered a bank run and is being closed by regulators. On top of all this, why is Arthur Hayes releasing a blog post talking about how to create synthetic U.S. dollars? out of derivatives contracts. Very interesting. In Bitcoin education, we're going to cover Optech 241 that has a piece on new core lightning features that are really important, including dual funded channels. And there is a note about the Bitcoin Inquisition soft fork testnet project, which I don't know a lot about. So I thought that was interesting to read on there. Then we have some feedback and boosts. And that's our show. It's a robust episode. Very banking focused. Do we jump into banking or do we cover the treasury on CBDCs first? Well, I suppose I would like to start there. Um, get us uh, get us all kind of primed. There's so many things that are shaping behind the scenes. And CBDCs feels like probably one of the biggest. Absolutely. And I think that CBDCs are broadly interesting because they are clearly inspired by Bitcoin. Bitcoin demonstrated that you can create digital cash that is very different from the way that money is transferred via the legacy banking system. And actually, this overview will be helpful for our banking stories as well, because in legacy banks, you have a system of accounts and the bank is a ledger. Every bank has their own ledger and they have assets on one side and liabilities on another. And so when you deposit money into the bank, the banks get a deposit liability. The, the money you put in is a liability of the bank. They have to pay that back to you at some point. But on the asset side, what do they get? Because liabilities and assets need to cancel out in double entry bookkeeping. Well, what they get is the cash in the deposit they can now put into loans, theoretically, or, or buying assets. And so the way that money is transferred in legacy banking is via balance sheets. These uh, banking institutions are reconciling their balance sheets together, and this reconciliation process takes time. And so there are just moments, you can almost think of this 
I'm going to try a metaphor here as a horse galloping. For those who don't aren't so familiar, horses have different uh, speeds at which they run. There's the uh, the trot, the canter, and the gallop. And for trotting and cantering, there's always one foot on the ground. But for the gallop, uh, the horses uh, synchronize their feet, and they the front and the back move together, or the front move together and the back move together. And so there's a moment in the gallop where all feet are off the ground. This is the legacy banking system. There are moments when not all of the transactions have cleared. And in that moment, all the ledgers are off the ground. They're not cleared yet. We don't know the state of the system. And so these are periodic and structural moments of instability. And this is part of why Caitlin Long has talked about how Caitlin Long, of course, the founder of Custodia Bank, that is a crypto bank with full reserve that is designed, in her view, to be a model of how to responsibly bank crypto companies and incorporate Bitcoin into the traditional financial system in a way that doesn't kill the traditional financial system, which is a concern. They are very concerned about settlement, about making sure that bank settlement doesn't get unaligned with blockchain settlement and create insolvencies. Well, CBDCs get away from some of the banking clearance insolvency risk by using a digital token. It could be account-based like Ethereum. It could be UTXO-based like Bitcoin, but it's definitely inspired by cryptocurrency. Sorry, that was a real tangent. Don't apologize. I like it. So that's the background to, to where CBDCs came from. But there's an impetus to. So in addition to the technology that Bitcoin revealed to the world that you can have digital cash, why do so many countries, I think 114 at the last count, want to explore a central bank digital currency? Uh, essentially, the uh, the Treasury will just tell you what they uh, what they want, and then they have it uh, they have it right here in their press release. They want something that's a legal tender. They want it to be convertible one to one into other forms of central bank money, reserve balances, or cash, and they want it to clear and settle instantly. So these are the monetary aspects of the CBDC, and these are very important particularly the second point. They want the CBDC to be convertible one for one into other forms of central bank money. This is a problem that we've been talking about for a long time with how the central bank has actually been unable to inject money directly into the economy. As we move to a more centrally managed or a economic system that is attempted to be centrally managed, the central bank actually does not have a good way to give everyone in their country 10 bucks or 100 bucks or 1000 bucks or to remove that money from circulation. They've attempted to control the amount of money or influence sentiment around money and finance by buying assets and putting it on the central bank balance sheet. But they discovered that the transmission of this activity into the quote unquote real economy is essentially there's no relation. You can't just push financial money onto financial companies' balance sheets and create economic activity. Instead, what you do is you create asset price bubbles. So the central bank digital currency is this fantasy of somehow being able to have a direct connection to every citizen in the country and to be able to control their money balances because citizens' money balances immediately go into the real economy as they buy goods and services. And so this is just a, a wet dream for central bankers. Right. So this would give them more tools, you're saying, to manipulate the market directly? Exactly. Exactly. So if you think that central banks are great and should be running more aspects of your lives, then you'll love CBDCs. If you weren't happy with their lack of control today, then you're going to love the CBDC. 
I guess because they've been attempting for a year to manipulate inflation by reducing demand, by increasing unemployment. And so far, employment remains strong. And they, even though that seems to have been their intention since November of last year, they don't really seem to have affected that number. It kind of speaks to what you're saying. They don't really have control so much as they can make changes that they suspect might lead to other effects happening. Right. They're trying to push a complex system at a single point, but it's like the butterfly flapping its wings. You don't know what the real effect on the system will be because there are a lot of moving parts that compensate for each other. So with the CBDC, you can actually solve this problem because all you do is you say, okay, well, inflation seems to be about 7%. Let's experiment by taking 2% of everyone's money away. And so you and I, we wake up in the morning and the $100 in our bank account suddenly becomes $98. And we're like, what the hell just happened? And there might be a little pop-up that says, Jerome Powell has inflicted a little pain on you to curb inflation. You're welcome. Now, that's just one terrifying thought. In addition to the ways that CBDCs can potentially provide central managers of the economy with more tools, the real catnip for creating CBDCs is on the government policy side. And this beautiful Treasury press release lays it all out. The first set of objectives relate to global financial leadership, including the global role of the U.S. dollar. Now, this is a essentially international foreign policy issue. How does the U.S. maintain the dollar dominance in the world? And they think that essentially, if other people are building CBDCs, we need to build CBDCs. You know, it's like an arms race. There's also this national security argument, the idea that somehow a CBDC will protect the financial system because by centralizing the financial system, by removing its sort of decentralized and resilient qualities, because even though, as we talked about, the isolated balance sheets of every bank is an inefficient way to move money through a system, and there are moments when the system is structurally unstable, they have this fantasy that by completely centralizing control into the central bank, somehow this will be more secure. And I think, you know, our experience based on centralized enterprise IT solutions would suggest that, uh, no, that's not how it works. You're just yeah, going you wish, to have right? the, the, a bigger, more critical system is going to blow up and it'll take down everything instead of just part of the system. See, I read it as a CBDC needs to essentially support weaponization of the dollar as a feature because they say, quote, the United States uses sanctions and other financial measures to address national security threats and deny criminals and other illicit actors access to the U.S. and international financial system. The effectiveness of these tools rests in part on the strength and centrality of the U.S. financial system and the role of the dollar. So uh, what I read that is, is, yes, centralization plays a role in so much that they can define that the CBDC should support weaponization of the dollar as a feature so they can turn off who can spend it and who can't. Absolutely. And so that just really merges with the third point, which is they want to attack privacy, uh, illicit finance, and then they, they have a little castaway comment about financial inclusion. Well, just to digress, it's interesting that the goal of the Chinese central bank digital currency was to control their domestic population. If your social credit score goes too low, then they turn off your individual money. And in the midst of a city surrounded by supermarkets and bars and restaurants, you could starve because they will turn off your ability to access the financial system. You won't be able to take the subway, to, to take a train, to move around. They'll, they'll 
imprison you in broad daylight in an open space by cutting off your financial system access. The U.S. is saying that they want to do the same thing, but on the international level. In a way, it's almost more terrifying than the Chinese Communist Party's goals with a central bank money, because the U.S. says, well, you know, we want privacy, quote unquote, for our citizens, but we also want the ability to cut off all the sanctions evaders in any country we don't like. Well, that's actually the exact same capabilities as the Chinese model. And as we've talked about a lot, if you build in a capability, specifically an aggressive, like weaponized one that gives the central administrator of the system privileges and the ability to discriminate against other people, it is going to be used. And there's just this weird human bias where people think, okay, well, you're building in this system that could be used to attack me, but I'm on your side. You'd never attack me. And then three, four, five years later, they're like, why are you attacking me? You know, why is this leopard eating my face? I voted for the face-eating lepers party, but why is it eating my face? You know, this (laughs) is how I read this press release. You know, the more we talk about this, the more I get really excited and hope they do it. And of course they will, but this feels like just a great opportunity for Bitcoin because... And this is going to happen all around the West. I've said this before. It's going to all these all these countries are going to implement their own local ship coin and everybody's going to become a cryptocurrency user, whether they like it or not. And it's going to drive the market to look for a product that is superior, that doesn't have these controls, doesn't have this tracking that they can trust. And people are going to turn to Bitcoin for some of that. And Bitcoin's going to be the only one when you're we now when the entire world is based on digital assets, even the way you pay your taxes is a digital asset. Well, there's only one true scarce digital asset that's outside this entire system, and it's Bitcoin. So I don't know, man. I think this is actually long term. I think this is actually going to be good for Bitcoin. Assuming you can buy Bitcoin or any sats with your CBDC, I suppose that could be a problem. We shall have to see. This is just a statement saying that the U.S. is evaluating whether a CBDC is in the national interest, but they've been evaluating for a while. The evaluation never comes up negative. So we'll see. Well, that's the weird thing is this is one of like many there are colleges out there that have been evaluating and studying cbdc's the treasury department has other study studies going on the fed has studies there's a lot of studies and they all seem to be like yes positive good for america and then we just get more studies so is this just what happens forever we just perpetually stay in this phase or is this building some sort of cacophony of evidence that will make the cbdc development quote unquote inevitable as far as policymakers are concerned i don't know where it leads yet but more studying yay there's actually a statement at the beginning of this press release i just want to share Central banks are at the heart of the global monetary system. Central bank money anchors the value of commercial money and provides a risk-free asset for settling interbank transactions. Central bank payment systems serve as the backbone for payment systems more generally. Given the central bank's key roles, changes in the design of central bank money and payments are likely to have profound implications for the financial health of consumers and the economy. Every point made here is wrong. And I'm not just being a tinfoil hat wearing Bitcoiner. Central banks are clearly not at the heart of the global monetary system because the Federal Reserve, which is the world's most important central bank, does not even attempt to 
follow monetary aggregates. If you have followed the history of the Federal Reserve, under Alan Greenspan in the 1990s, the Fed decided that actually attempting to manage the money supply, which is theoretically their mandate, at least in the form of controlling inflation, was too complicated because they couldn't understand how the international euro dollar, offshore dollar system works. And as a result, they pivoted to instead of attempting to manage the monetary system to focus on jawboning, essentially psychologically manipulating the behavior of financial market participants using press releases combined with moving short-term interest rates. So based on my description of what the Fed has been doing for the past 30 years, you can kind of see that this Treasury statement completely misunderstands what central banks are doing and how important they are for the financial system. So there's a lot of complication here. But one big fact is that policymakers don't understand the monetary system at all. Yeah, at all levels. It seems policymakers in Congress and in the Treasury, it, I, I actually think this is one of the biggest perplexing problems we have is no one really, except for probably <laughs> the, the folks at the Federal Reserve, really fully appreciate how the economy works. That's probably not fair, but it feels like that at least. The Federal Reserve doesn't understand either. I've been sitting on a whole bunch of blog posts from a former Fed trader. Yeah. And I honestly, I read these things every week and I'm like, oh, I need to get this on the podcast, but they're so wonky because <laughs> it is hilarious how someone who literally has worked at the Fed for years completely misunderstands how their policy works. And it's because you can't be paid to understand something that is making you money. Like you, like if you are the Federal Reserve, emotionally, you cannot hear the criticism that the way the system works does not actually reflect how you say it works. Because right. your job is not that important. You aren't managing things. You're literally creating noise. No one wants to hear that. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, what's that quote? It's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. That's too long for a show title, but that could be <laughs> the title of almost all of our shows, I think. Yeah. It's kind of been a big week for regional U.S. banks that have been focusing on crypto and venture capital. Uh, wow. What a week. I think it took since the last episode for the market to digest the Silvergate Bank news. And uh, we are seeing massive price action, I think, as a result, as they begin to understand it. And the economy, the, just the, across the economy, actually, things are, have really been bad this last week. But it seems like people are realizing, holy crap, we basically have one leg left on this stool for funding the crypto market. This is really bad. And then you have Silicon Valley Bank, which was a California bank that focused on startups. And from what I've heard, I could be wrong, but from what I've heard, they also had a lending program that was available for certain startups that maybe didn't qualify for additional funding. Maybe they didn't have established credit. They didn't have enough assets, etc. Silicon Valley Bank kind of had essentially like a VC program. I don't think they called it that, but it kind of acted like that. And so they were the money committed to ongoing payments to lots of startups in the Silicon Valley area, including crypto companies. And both of these banks were taken down by bank runs. So the question is, why were there bank runs on Silvergate, a crypto bank, and Silicon Valley Bank, a tech and startup bank? You know, they're kind of similar. I think they're both based in California. And the answer is, for Silvergate, there was some bad news because they were the banker of Alameda Research and FTX, 
to huge Ponzi schemes run by Sam Bankman-Fried. And this put some bad publicity on Silvergate. And then Silvergate was hit with a Department of Justice investigation into their relationship with FTX. And this DOJ investigation really spooked Silvergate depositors. And so crypto companies started pulling their money out. And then the Silvergate actually began as a bank that did a lot of real estate lending. And so they could access a federal home loan bank that provided them with short-term liquidity as they were having uh, deposits uh, being pulled out. And that credit line was cut off very suddenly due to essentially media attention, the perception that, hey, this crypto bank, it's speculative, it's crypto, it's so bad. Why are they able to access a federal home loan credit bank? And so the access to that credit line was cut off. And then Silvergate had to sell like $2 billion of assets to cover their withdrawals. And what's interesting is Silvergate didn't lose a penny of customer deposits. And so from a certain perspective, they're probably one of the best run banks in America because other banks in America, like Wells Fargo and JP Morgan, they couldn't handle a 70% drawdown of deposits. It would be impossible. They would immediately need to go to the Fed, the FDIC, and say, hey, we need short-term liquidity today. Whereas Silvergate had very little support. They had their credit lines cut off and they never defaulted on any customer deposits. So that's positive. The negative for Silvergate is that they had an asset liability mismatch. And this is fundamental to the banking model. Silicon Valley Bank has the same problem. Every bank has the same problem. And the issue is that your deposits are short-term liabilities. They can be removed from your bank at any time, and you'll have to pay those back at that moment because the moment you delay a withdrawal operation, everybody freaks out and then everyone takes out all their money. So you must always honor deposits. But how does a bank make money? They have to take those deposits and invest them in longer-term duration assets. And for 50 years, the safe longer-term duration asset has been U.S. Treasuries. Well, in the past two years, the Federal Reserve has pulled the interest rate on U.S. Treasuries broadly up from 0% to, I think we're around 4 or something, uh, on the short end of the, the curve. I understand there are different durations. It's pretty complicated. But in general, the Fed is pulling the Fed funds rate, the sort of, oh, sorry, not the Fed funds rate, but, but trying to move the yield on U.S. government securities up to increase these interest rates with the belief that this will reduce credit creation in the economy, reduce employment, and therefore reduce inflation. And you would think that's great if the interest rate on treasury bills goes up and treasury securities goes up, then Silvergate and Silicon Valley Bank can safely invest deposits into these bills and they'll be getting a higher interest rate. And that's good, right? Well, no, because when the Fed raises interest rates, it's not like all treasuries in the world start paying a higher interest rate. There are still trillions of dollars of treasuries that were issued at a 0% interest rate. And there's this thing called bond math. And basically, if I've got a bond that's paying a 1% interest rate, and then a bond is issued that is paying a 4% interest rate, my 1% interest rate compared to this 4% interest rate bond is worth like 
half as much. It, there's this bizarre nonlinear math to it. But essentially, as interest rates go up, your bonds that you were holding because that was a safe investment, they're actually worth so much less now, like 30, 40, 50% less, depending on the specifics of the bond and the interest rate you bought it at. And so Silvergate Bank and Silicon Valley Bank, they all had relatively safe, quote unquote, bond portfolios that were deeply underwater, deeply below the value that they bought them at due to the Fed's policy of raising interest rates. And so when they had to sell assets to cover a bank run, they wiped out their equity, the investment in the bank, and therefore they're insolvent. So these bank runs might have been created by you know, certain uh, news, uh, you know, negative news in the economy. But the reason that these banks are insolvent is essentially because the Federal Reserve has attempted to tighten the financial conditions by raising interest rates. And this means that huge institutional bond portfolios are deeply negative, and that if they have to be sold to cover short-term liabilities, those institutions risk insolvency and bankruptcy. What I don't understand is I thought the bond was like the safe bet. That was the safe bet. And that seems like kind of a message to the market that if you need that money right now, your bonds are not a safe bet. Bonds are a safe bet if it's 1984 and interest rates are 15% and then they, they go down consistently over the next 40 years. Because as interest rates rise, so if I have a 1% bond, uh, a bond yielding 1% interest and interest rates rise to 2%, my 1% bond is worth less. But mm. if interest rates fall to 0.5% or to 0%, my bond, my 1% yielding bond is now worth significantly more. So the bond bull market was essentially caused by interest rates in the 80s hitting a peak of around 15% and then falling consistently since then. That was the best financial trade in history before Bitcoin was invented. Just buying long-dated bonds and holding them and selling them off as the interest rate fell and these bonds became even more valuable due to bond math. So it was perceived because this phenomenon lasted for 40 years that bonds were this incredibly safe, like no-duh financial bet. And it turns out that yes, they are if interest rates are falling. But once you hit that 0% interest bound, which we hit in 2008 and then hung around there for a decade, and now we're rising off that, turns out that bonds are garbage in this raising interest rate environment. So turns out all the smart financial money, they're just as dumb as the rest of us. They use heuristics to make decisions instead of directly analyzing the world from first principles. And yeah, Bitcoin, there is no alternative. Yeah, really. Um, and so now Silicon Valley Bank is uh, being operated by the U.S. federal government as we record. They've taken control because, as you said, as their value of their deposits drop, nobody wanted to buy them. Even as companies were trying to evaluate Silicon Valley Bank, if they were worth the purchase, the value was dropping. It just became impossible. And the ramifications of this, I suspect, I'm curious to know what you think, Dad, are likely going to be felt the most in the tech industry um, because it's going to be a lot of these small businesses that we're looking for investment. Um, and I think some of them are going to be crypto because that's kind of what they became known for in the last year or two was specifically their risk tolerance for investing in crypto companies. So you combine this with the Silvergate news and then you also combine that with essentially the crackdown we're seeing um, 
led by the the federal government to encourage the banks to stop doing business with crypto companies. And it feels like what we've just gone through wasn't a crypto winter at all. That was crypto fall. And we're now entering the real crypto winter where liquidity is pretty much dried up. Banks are kind of just not even willing to touch this. The ones that are left are going to be under extreme scrutiny. And then you combine that with ongoing legal actions now from multiple different fronts against different crypto companies, projects, and of course, this entire debate around what is a security. It's really, it really feels like we are going to be in a long period of low price, which I'm all here for. Absolutely. I don't see how you get a Bitcoin bull market when the financial market conditions are so uncertain and access to liquidity is a requirement. Yeah, there's just not enough cash now in the crypto ecosystem to even get the price going on a bull run. Right. And to continue on the banking theme, there is a report that JP Morgan Chase is probably going to cut their relationship with Gemini, the Winklevise crypto exchange. And Gemini has denied this, but I mean, of course they would, right? So if you even see major US crypto exchanges losing their banking, this is a return to 2014. You know, there's all the money will likely leave this space or a lot of it because it just won't have a way to get in. And I'm not saying this is the end of crypto scams and or Bitcoin, not at all. But what it means is that for projects that need these regulated on-ramps, they're going to have to go overseas. And they're still going to get hit with U.S. financial attacks because our next story is about the U.S. Attorney General going after KuCoin, an exchange based in the Seychelles. Well, it's in the Seychelles. How on earth do you have jurisdiction? Well, the argument is maybe a New York state citizen might have deposited funds onto KuCoin. Therefore, we completely regulate you. You know, (laughs) good luck operating even internationally in this environment. This is very, very hostile and difficult if you're a financial company. It feels like we're going to see the different legal bodies and regulatory bodies see how far they can push this, try to establish their jurisdiction, you know, claim their real estate in this space. And they're going to do that by trying to execute these cases. However, you know, okay, so what you pointed out is an extremely fascinating aspect about that legal case coming from the New York Attorney General. But I can't help but be more distracted by the fact that they're also arguing that straight up Ethereum is a security. So full disclosure, I have a friend who worked with Letitia James, and I just couldn't have a higher opinion of the New York State Attorney General. I know she's basically a cop, but I mean, she, she just gets so righteous. You know, it's so fun when she riles against um, whoever she's targeting. You know, that said, we'll probably be on the on the wrong end of this one day and I'll eat these words, but I'm a big fan. And so I really, really enjoyed reading the legal brief of Letitia James versus Mech Global Limited and Phoenix PT LTD, which do business as KuCoin. Essentially, the argument is that KuCoin's cryptocurrency platform, regardless of where it is in the world, is available from within New York because no duh, it's online, right? And the complaint is that KuCoin is selling securities, unregistered securities. And in the explanation of these unregistered securities that are being sold, this brief makes the very, very obvious argument 
that Ethereum is also a security. It has many characteristics of a security. It's being promoted as an investment, for instance, by the Ethereum Foundation, and that the documents from the Ethereum ICO represented that the emission of Ethereum would slow over time, creating a scarcity. But actually, this has sort of failed to happen. And the proof of stake consensus has actually maybe further violated the promises of decentralization and slowing issuance from the Ethereum ICO. It's a mind-bogglingly obvious argument. We have made it many times. It is refreshing to hear that Letitia and her staff are listeners to the pod. So <laughs> I hope they it really boost is. In, it is boost in. It's a classic dad takedown. I mean, it starts. It starts with the initial coin offering that was done and the distribution, the pre-mine, right? It gets into the transition to staking, like you said. It talks about the various locations that promote it as an investment. And then my favorite part is right as right after they're talking about ETH and, and what's wrong with the staking rewards and all of that, they just transition right into Luna and UST. <laughs> it's like cut from the same cloth. It is. It's like one made it and one didn't, right? One one kept the wheels on and one hasn't. And this is an interesting maybe precedent that could start to get set here because I've long suspected that the SEC also shares these concerns, but is actually waiting for staking to be withdrawn. They're actually waiting for the Shanghai update. And once the Shanghai update passes or, you know, whatever, however they, you know, with the time, with the with the difficulty bomb or however they get the stakers to do it now, because there's always some control mechanism they have to get everybody to upgrade. After that gets upgraded, I've always suspected that the SEC will go after Ethereum uh, more aggressively. Wouldn't it be interesting if in the background, while we're all waiting for that, this case begins to proceed and begins to establish some precedents or, or something? Um, this could be could be part of a larger initiative against Ethereum long term. Do you think that the impetus to wait until Ethereum can be unstaked before announcing an attack on Ethereum would be, well, now you can sell. This would really crash the price. Do you think there's that intent? No, I, I think it's something about really completing the investment thing that once people can actually remove their money and they've made a profit or something to that effect. It's uh, or once these companies start making a profit on the books, then the cycle it completes the entire cycle of a security investment kind of of product. It's not like they're saying, "Well, hold on, you can't even unstake." So it's really just funny money. I mean, it, you can't even make money on this. It's insane, right? Right. That could be their argument today. Well, this is a case to watch, and I think that the tweet from Eric Voorhees. Should we introduce Eric? I feel like we've done it before. I think we've talked about Eric on the show, right? He's been around forever. You've known him longer than me. Yeah, Eric's been interesting. Um, Eric was an early voice for Bitcoin and kind of a radical thinker who would push the boundary on what people were willing to discuss. And I think that got him some attention in the Bitcoin community early on. And then as things went on, blockchain wars and Ethereum, uh, he kind of became an altcoiner, didn't he? I mean, now I don't I mean, I don't really follow him anymore, but now I believe he's uh, involved with Shapeshift, which is a company that's kind of like a DeFi company. No, I think that Shapeshift has disappeared because. Oh, oh, OK. Yes. Yeah, again, I don't follow him. Shapeshift was a centralized exchange that did atomic swaps and they were shut down for not 
performing KYC. And so I believe he's now behind Avalanche Network. And he did something where he turned that company into a DAO to try to legally shield himself from the responsibility for operating an unlicensed security exchange. And as our very early interviews with Crypto Mom suggest, DAOs do not provide you with a legal shield. This will actually come up later in Arthur Hayes' piece. DAOs are general partnerships, or from a negative legal view, they are conspiracies. So I don't know if Eric's model for regulatory arbitrage is going to work. Essentially, he's always tried to go for this kind of like unregulated finance angle that cryptocurrency provides. And I think part of that is that he has a very extreme libertarian philosophy, a la Peter Thiel or someone like that, maybe even more extreme. And so Eric is kind of famous, I think, for not having a problem with scamming. Like if you get scammed, it's your fault. That's his view. And I think that's a deeply irresponsible view because we know from history that if enough people get scammed, terrible things can happen socially. The uh, war in Bosnia, that kind of happened. Uh, One of the things that contributed to that was this massive MMM Ponzi scheme that scammed a huge number of people out of all of their funds. And in the chaos after that, uh, like military armories were raided and suddenly you had like armed groups in the country. So that's obviously an extreme example. But, you know, there's this philosophy I kind of hear that people express, which is sort of like, hey, not my problem. You know, should, you should have, uh, you know, you have to take personal responsibility. A fool and his money. <laughs> right. But the thing is, yeah, sure, that might work on a certain scale. But on another scale, when you have like industrialized scamming that isn't being shut down by any sort of social regulator or, or whatever. Right. You get Sam Bankman freed. And you get, you know, in an extreme case, a civil war. <laughs> So Eric, he does this thing where he's like, well, you know, those Bitcoiners who are attacking altcoins are so bad because Bitcoin uses a lot of energy and ETH is being attacked for a security. So you really need to defend both. And I don't really understand the logic there other than he's talking his book. Yeah, definitely talking his book, right? One uses energy and one is a security are not equivalencies at all. And the one that uses energy could offer all kinds of like new possibilities for digital assets that are based on a real world valuable thing, energy, where right now Ethereum is just fiat top to bottom. There's really nothing that anchors it to the physical world that has value. And just to lead into the energy attack, there's this lovely tweet thread about a White House proposal to add a 30% tax or surcharge on cryptocurrency energy use. It's pretty preposterous because it would involve a huge amount of invasive surveillance. It would it would kind of break a lot of assumptions in the United States about freedom of speech and the freedom to privately conduct business without having, say, government or institutional monitoring built into your business systems, which honestly, that's a security hole. That's that's not a good idea. And what's kind of beautiful about this Twitter thread is it, you know, it covers a lot of the common whataboutisms that Bitcoiners throw back at energy usage. Well, what about artificial intelligence? They're using a huge amount of energy. What about the fact that Bitcoin is not even a percentage of global emissions? 
Well, it does feel like, why are we making some types of compute illegal and other types of compute not? I mean, there is something to it. Like how many GPUs are running chat GPT right now? We don't know exactly, but it's millions probably, right? Just for people to go play around with a chatbot. There is something to that argument. It does feel like for some reason we've determined this type of compute bad, but this other type of compute, you know, if you've got an Xbox that's pulling 700 watts from your wall, that's fine. But if you have a Bitcoin miner that's pulling more than that, that's bad. Or a tumble dryer. Like, I think I wish we would spend more time kicking those ideas around because I think it points out how obvious it is that the energy discussion is clearly singling Bitcoin out when since Bitcoin has existed, there are new things that we've invented that use considerably more energy that have very little value. When we're talking about hard money, <laughs> you know, like it just feels absolutely ridiculous considering what we'll do to get lithium so people can have their Tesla or what we'll do so people can have their gold jewelry, what we'll do to the earth. But yet, God forbid, we run a computer that does math, that takes energy, that can, by the way, run off things like methane off gases and run in all kinds of environments traditional data centers can and can be spun up and spun down in a moment's notice in a way that AWS and Azure can't, right? So it's not only is it hard money that's for the people, that's global, it's also a very flexible consumer of electricity. And it can do perhaps, perhaps, maybe, it, can, it, it could have a real role in making sustainable energy sources profitable and making companies willing to invest in them. And so by putting a 30% tax on any Bitcoin mining or any proof of work mining, that's how they label it, I think would significantly reduce the innovation in this market. One of the things people have been pointing out is that there are those heat bit and other systems that are heaters, space heaters for your home that draw about a thousand watts that use ASICs and they mine Bitcoin to generate the heat. I, I use electric space heaters in my home. Um, in fact, that's really where people need to transition long term if we can make the central energy production green. And what's the difference between a space heater that uses a thousand watts to just convert that electricity directly into heat and radiate it into the room versus a space heater that's using ASICs using a thousand watts to generate heat? One actually is doing something productive. I can answer that for you. One is a consumer of electricity and doesn't challenge the political and economic status quo. And one does challenge that hierarchy. Right. One would have a 30% tax and one, even though it's just 100% waste, would not. And that right there shows you how ludicrous this is. Now, we got distracted by energy, but Arthur Hayes has a new blog post. And don't worry, Chris, don't, need to, don't even look at it. It's just really interesting <laughs> from a high level. Okay. All right. His whole blog post is about how, and he's talked about this many times, how you can create synthetic U.S. dollars using Bitcoin as collateral and then creating a derivative that sells the upside of the Bitcoin to someone else. And if you take Bitcoin collateral plus a derivative that sells the upside, it's like a reverse perpetual swap or something that he calls it. You put these things together and you've created a stable coin out of Bitcoin that is theoretically quite robust, even if the Bitcoin price changes 100x in either direction. Why is he talking about this? So first of all, his proposal is preposterous. It is so preposterous. It's not something that you can create in a hostile regulatory environment, because even if you do this on an offshore exchange, you're still going to be hit with regulation because there are arguments that Binance USD, it, this stablecoin, is an unregistered security because you would only use it to speculate in DeFi protocols. And so it's kind of part of a ex expectation of profit. So it's clearly a security. This 
construction that Arthur is suggesting is very much the same. So it doesn't really protect you from the real risk, which is regulatory attack. But what I think it says is that Arthur is very concerned about these banking attacks, specifically on stable coins that underlie all of these DeFi ecosystems, because I think he has big DeFi ecosystem bags. And so all of these bank attacks, this uh, investigation into Paxos that provides the Binance USD backend, yep. it kind of, you know, regulators have figured out if you mm-hmm. want to pour water on this party, go at the funding sources for the crypto ecosystem. And stable coins are a huge part of that. And so conveniently, yeah. yep. Arthur has a solution to the stablecoin problem that's like this very esoteric, complicated derivative plus Bitcoin. And it would oh, be very logical to use his exchange to build this thing. Someone check it out, please. He's, he's, uh, he's speaking his fears out loud here, I think. And that's interesting. I do think that if regulators were going to go after stablecoins, now is their moment of opportunity, right? This is sort of like the kill it or it's just going to thrive at some point moment, it seems like, for stablecoins. And if they could take out a couple of these, shake them down a little bit, I don't know. It seems like this is the moment they're going to do it. And this is the direction things are going. I am still surprised at how aggressive they're going after all this stuff in this bear market. It seemed like they were completely checked out during the bull run. Like they weren't paying any attention at all. And all along, <laughs> they were taking notes and making a list. And I, you got to figure stablecoins, they're on somebody's list. Somebody out there is, this is, they feel like this is their moment of opportunity. So I kind of actually agree with Arthur. I mean, I don't know about uh, synthetic dollars pegged to the upside and downside of Bitcoin, but um, I think it's more likely one of these, probably USDC, is going to get some sort of official blessing, some sort of regulatory carve out. I don't know. And that's where this goes long term. And then there will be one true stable coin, I think. But of course, there will be others like Tether and all the derivatives that get made up on DeFi. But one blessed stable coin, I think, by the uh, those in charge. It ties back to the Treasury speech slash press release we covered first, because they talk about, do we want a retail facing central bank digital currency or do we want a right. wholesale right. that is used by banks and the banks can kind of offer it as a service to their customers. Now, that's another, of course, issue with central bank digital currencies. They literally kill the entire banking system by disintermediating the bank's from the customers and the central bank suddenly becomes the banker to the world. So it doesn't work on a lot of levels. Synthetic dollars are really interesting. And I think that for people who are fascinated by kind of like mathematical quant-based finance, these synthetic stable coin things are, are really tantalizing. My sense is that Luna and Terra show us that systems like this are kind of inherently unstable because you can look at the state of the algorithmic stable coin or derivative-based stable coin, and you can figure out the liquidation price. And I think with Arthur's proposal, you know, one thing about Arthur is he's, he's very clever. I don't think he's particularly technical. He doesn't identify that his system relies on centralized oracles, the, uh, the exchanges that administer the system. They're actually kind of exposed to the volatility and risk of it, and they have to be trusted to provide accurate pricing for these derivative contracts that are combined with Bitcoin collateral to create a stablecoin. There's a lot of complicated trust and incentives in that system. So is it worth trying? Sure, why not? Do I think that's a solution for decentralized dollars in DeFi? Absolutely not. I don't think it would work. Certainly not long term. Yeah, and I don't know how how big of a market is there really, other than for people who just want to play around and you know 
try to try to make a buck at something moons. I mean, I just don't really see it as something that's going to be the next Wall Street. That said, this is very similar to the stable sats that are built into the Galois wallet. That might be fun yeah, to... Don't you see it making more sense at sort of that scale of an implementation, though? Okay, I get that. Yeah, I mean, I think where I break with Arthur is he clearly thinks this is something that can be fed into a DeFi ecosystem, whereas with stable sets, you look at it in the Galois Bitcoin Beach wallet, and it's basically a way to shield yourself from Bitcoin volatility temporarily. So it's kind of a different scope, I think. Well, hey there. This here episode of The Bitcoin Dad is brought to you by the self-hosted podcast. That's another show I do with my buddy Alex, selfhosted.show. Over there, it's all about sovereign data, standing up your own infrastructure, taking your information out of certain cloud providers' hands, and running it in a way that is sustainable on your own systems. Head over to selfhosted.show. A new episode comes out every other week. So we're not blasting you. Only the good stuff makes it. Selfhosted.show. And some spice in the latest episode. Apparently, Alex is tearing everything down and building it up again. Yep. And man, the amount of work he gets done in between episodes sometimes just blows me away. You, It's just incredible. Bitcoin Optech 241 has hit the streets and there is a long section about alternative designs for OP Vault, which is a proposed opcode that would allow you to create a slightly encumbered UTXO. So it would be suitable for a super deep cold storage setup where you'd have some Bitcoin that is quite hard to spend. And that could be used as a security model. There's also a section on the latest Bitcoin Core PR Review Club, which focused on Bitcoin Inquisition, which is a new sort of testnet client that is used for testing consensus and relay changes to the Bitcoin network. This kind of testing is very hard to do because you kind of need to see how many different computers running different versions of the software interact over a network with different kind of time delays and things like that. So it's incredibly complicated and it's a very, I think it's heartening to see that there is a large enough Bitcoin development community to have infrastructure projects like this deployed and ready to test changes to Bitcoin Core. I thought the big takeaway, and I thought where you're going to go with this, was the discussion around Core Lightning, because there's a feature in there that could save a lot of casual Lightning admins massive headache. Core Lightning really looks like it's going to be the enterprise choice for Lightning, in my view, because this new addition of a backup function so that you can back up your channel state to external storage in case your node goes down or you have disk corruption. This is just a must-have if you're going to be running this in a business environment with real money on the line. See, I see this more as a casual feature. Oh, really? Because it business. Well, yeah, because pe- businesses and enterprises should already have standards and and practices in place to back these things up. I mean, it's definitely good to see for sure, though. Either way, I think it's good for both ends, really, if you think about it. Right, but I mean, even if you are snapshotting, so let's say we're at enterprises and we've got you know some fancy enterprise file system and we're snapshotting you know our channel state every second or minute, their database is involved. So I think having a dedicated backup function. Well, and what's neat about it too, it's like, it's a peer that stores an encrypted bit of your information. So in theory, this could even help when you've had some sort of serious loss because you don't even, it's not even necessarily on your node, it's on a peer's node. Oh, so it could be part of a cybersecurity business continuity plan, things like that? Yeah, and and I I guess the way it works is it's signed by your node, and so they can't 
decrypt it, but they can store it for you. Bomber. Really bomber. Yeah, it is. This is it's bussin', as the kids say. There's also a BTC pay server update. I think we need to run that. Maybe once we get our BTC pay server up, we'll be willing to do merchandise again because it'll mm. be the back end for a web store. I don't know why I said again. I've never done merchandise. I know you have. Well, it is it is really nice to see them implement the different privacy stuff now. Like that's that's really what's starting to get my attention is they're starting to refine the coin join and pay join functionality in here. And so, I mean, the idea that as the payment comes in, you could just anonymize it right then before it lands in your wallet. That's a compelling use case for me. Integrating privacy features seamlessly into popular software stacks is great news. And the tools have to be there for people to use them. Eventually, they'll figure out why privacy is valuable, I hope. Remember, you can get in touch at bitcoindadpod at protonmail.com or I, I'm not really on Twitter. I don't think it's a good way to get in touch any, anymore. Sorry. <laughs> there's, there's Matrix, I guess. You yeah, know? <laughs> consider, consider joining our Matrix channel. Links in the show notes. Now, I think the Lightning Network was down this week because we only got a few boosts. So I think it must have been, could have been our nodes. Maybe it actually could have been, actually. Our first boost this week comes in from Hal Was Right with a row of sticks. He writes, Nick's Bitcoin in a VM. I run Nick's Bitcoin on bare metal. It's better to keep BTC stuff separate from other services for security. Nick's OS works great with CFS and can have a root mirror drives on something like a small NUC. A setup like that should run for a long time. I agree. I am tempted to use a NUC. I think I'll, I think I still lean towards an Odroid. I like the simplicity of no moving parts, but uh, I love Nick's Bitcoin. I, I'm i going to say I mostly agree with your take that you shouldn't. Well, I don't know. I mean, if we're going to start worrying about the security of Proxmox and VMware, hmm, I think we're going to have to start worrying. And, and KVM, there's a lot of infrastructure we have to start worrying about. But that said, I do often like having critical infrastructure on its own dedicated hardware. Yeah, I think everyone has to figure out what works for their setup. It's so personal. I am aware that Nick's OS works really great with ZFS and you can do things like having mirrored root drives. And the way that NixOS pins packages, it kind of saves you from some of the risks of using DKMS to build your ZFS kernel modules, because you might have a kernel upgrade that breaks your boot drive, which is a real pain in the butt. Yeah, you know what's great about ButterFS? You don't have to worry about if it works good with that distribution or not, because it works with all distributions, because it's built into the Linux kernel. Our next boost comes from DPG, who sends in 2,500 sats. Hey, Dad and Chris, shout out to Bitcoin Lizard in the Matrix chat. He helped me a ton getting my Lightning node set up and is a fantastic community ambassador. Thanks, DPG, and thanks to Bitcoin Lizard. Bitcoin Lizard is great. He told me to get off my tukus and run Core Lightning. He's definitely <laughs> right about that. Yeah, he's, off, he's often a helpful voice in there. Tar comes in with 3,333 sats, and it's just a thumbs up emoji. Hello, Patar. Nice to hear from you again. We also have a boost under the limit from Jingles. Great podcast, great info on how much scam is going on in the crypto world and helping those that aren't always in the know focused on what truly matters in all the noise. And what truly matters is Bitcoin. Here, here. Thanks for the compliment. And we agree with the sentiment. Bitcoin matters. The scams, much less so. We uh, want to thank everybody who boosts in with maybe no message or boosts in under the limit, which I believe is a thousand sats. And uh, we still appreciate everybody who streams those sats as well. Of course, this is a value for value podcast. So if you want to support the show with a little value in return, maybe you found something interesting, useful, or informative, why not boost the dip? I like Albi because you don't have to switch podcast apps. Get Albi.com. Then you just go to the podcastindex.org, find the Bitcoin Dad Pod. 
that. And you can boost in from there. But if you're ready for a change, you want to participate in a wave of development for the new podcasting future, go to newpodcastapps.com, get fountain.fm, maybe Podverse if you want something cross-platform and GPO. And if you're on iOS, those, I, those iPhone users, they love Castomatic. You might too. Newpodcastapps.com. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on March 10th, 2023. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here as always with me. Chris, thanks for joining us, everybody. See you next time.